Part 2, Chapter 9, Section 102 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 9, Miracles of Jesus. Section 102, The Miraculous Multiplication of the Loaves and Fishes. As, in the histories last considered, Jesus determined and mitigated the motions of irrational and even of inanimate existences. So, in the narratives which we are about to examine, he exhibits the power of multiplying not only natural objects, but also productions of nature which had been wrought upon by art. That Jesus miraculously multiplied prepared articles of food feeding a great multitude of men with a few loaves and fishes, is narrated to us with singular unanimity by all the evangelists. Matthew chapter 14 verse 13 and following, Mark chapter 6 verse 30 and following, Luke chapter 9 verse 10 and following, John chapter 6 verse 1 and following. And if we believe the two first, Jesus did not do this merely once. For in Matthew chapter 15 verse 32 and following, Mark chapter 8 verse 1 and following, we read of a second multiplication of loaves and fishes, the circumstances of which are substantially the same as those of the former. It happens somewhat later, the place is rather differently described, and the length of time during which the multitude stayed with Jesus is differently stated. Moreover, and this is a point of greater importance, the proportion between the stock of food and the number of men is different, for on the first occasion five thousand men are satisfied with five loaves and two fishes, and on the second four thousand with seven loaves and a few fishes. On the first twelve baskets are filled with the fragments, on the second only seven. Notwithstanding this, not only is the substance of the two histories exactly the same, the satisfying of a multitude of people with disproportionately small means of nourishment, but also the description of the scene in the one entirely corresponds in its principal features to that of the other. In both instances, the locality is a solitary region in the vicinity of the Galilean Sea. Jesus is led to perform the miracle because the people have lingered too long with him. He manifests a wish to feed the people from his own stores, which the disciples regard as impossible. The stock of food at his disposal consists of loaves and fishes. Jesus makes the people sit down and, after giving thanks, distributes the provisions to them through the medium of the disciples. They are completely satisfied, and yet a disproportionately great quantity of fragments is afterwards collected in baskets. Lastly, in the one case as in the other, Jesus, after thus feeding the multitude, crosses the sea. This repetition of the same event creates many difficulties. The chief of these is suggested by the question, Is it conceivable that the disciples 
after they had themselves witnessed how Jesus was able to feed a great multitude with a small quantity of provision, should nevertheless on a second occasion of the same kind have totally forgotten the first, and have asked, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to feed so great a multitude? To render such an obliviousness on the part of the disciples probable, we are reminded that they had, in just as incomprehensible a manner, forgotten the declarations of Jesus concerning his approaching sufferings and death, when these events occurred. But it is equally a pending question whether, after such plain predictions from Jesus, his death could in fact have been so unexpected to the disciples. It has been supposed that a longer interval had elapsed between the two miracles, and that during this there had occurred a number of similar cases in which Jesus did not think fit to afford miraculous assistance. But, on the one hand, these are pure fictions. On the other, it would remain just as inconceivable as ever that the striking similarity of the circumstances preceding the second feeding of the multitude to those preceding the first should not have reminded even one of the disciples of that former event. Paulus, therefore, is right in maintaining that had Jesus once already fed the multitude by a miracle, the disciples, on the second occasion, when he expressed his determination not to send the people away fasting, would confidently have called upon him for a repetition of the former miracle. In any case, then, if Jesus, on two separate occasions, fed a multitude with disproportionately small provision, we must suppose, as some critics have done, that many features in the narrative of the one incident were transferred to the other, and thus the two, originally unlike, became in the course of oral tradition more and more similar, the incredulous question of the disciples especially having been uttered only on the first occasion, and not on the second. It may seem to speak in favor of such an assimilation, that the fourth evangelist, though in his numerical statement he is in accordance with the first narrative of Matthew and Mark, yet has, in common with the second, the circumstances that the scene opens with an address of Jesus and not of the disciples, and that the people come to Jesus on a mountain. But if the fundamental features be allowed to remain, the wilderness, the feeding of the people, the collection of the fragments, it is still, even without that question of the disciples, sufficiently improbable that the scene should have been repeated in so entirely similar a manner. If, on the contrary, these general features be renounced in relation to one of the histories, it is no longer apparent how the veracity of the evangelical narratives as to the manner in which the second multiplication of loaves and fishes took place can be questioned on all points, and yet their statement as to the fact of its occurrence be maintained as trustworthy, especially as the statement is confined to Matthew and his imitator Mark. Hence, later critics have, with more or less decision, expressed the opinion that here one and the same fact has been doubled, 
through a mistake of the first evangelist who was followed by the second they suppose that several narratives of the miraculous feeding of the multitude were current which presented divergencies from each other especially in relation to numbers and that the author of the first gospel to whom every additional history of a miracle was a welcome prize and who was therefore little qualified for the critical reduction of two different narratives of this kind into one introduced both into his collection this fully explains how on the second occasion the disciples could again express themselves so incredulously namely because in the tradition whence the author of the first gospel obtained the second history of a miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes it was the first and only one and the evangelist did not obliterate this feature because apparently he incorporated the two narratives into his writing just as he read or heard them among other proofs that this was the case may be mentioned the constancy with which he and mark who copied him not only in the account of the events but also in the subsequent allusion to them matthew chapter sixteen verse nine and following mark chapter eight verse nineteen and following call the baskets in the first feeding kofinoi in the second spurides it is indeed correctly maintained that the apostle matthew could not possibly take one event for two and relate a new history which never happened but this proposition does not involve the reality of the second miraculous feeding of the multitude unless the apostolic origin of the first gospel be at once presupposed whereas this yet remains to be proved paulus further objects that the duplication of the history in question could be of no advantage whatever to the design of the evangelist and olhausen developing this idea more fully observes that the legend would not have left the second narrative as simple and bare as the first but this argument that a narrative cannot be fictitious because if it were so it would have been more elaborately adorned may very properly be at once dismissed since its limits being altogether undefined it might be repeated under all circumstances and in the end would prove fable itself not sufficiently fabulous but in this case particularly it is totally baseless because it presupposes the narrative of the first feeding of the multitude to be historically accurate now if we have already in this a legendary production the other edition of it namely the second history of a miraculous feeding needs not to be distinguished by special traditionary features but not only is the second narrative not embellished as regards the miraculous when compared with the first it even diminishes the miracle for while increasing the quantity of provision it reduces the number of those whom it satisfied and this retrogression in the marvelousness is thought the surest proof that the second feeding of the multitude really occurred for it is said he who chose to invent an additional miracle of this kind would have made it surpass the first 
and instead of five thousand men would have given not four but ten thousand this argument also rests on the unfounded assumption that the first narrative is of course the historical one though olshausen himself has the idea that the second might with probability be regarded as the historical basis and the first as the legendary copy and then the fictitious would have the required relation to the true that of exaggeration but when in opposition to this he observes how improbable it is that an unscrupulous narrator would place the authentic fact being the less imposing last and eclipse it beforehand by the false one that such a writer would rather seek to outdo the truth and therefore place his fiction last as the more brilliant he again shows that he does not comprehend the mythical view of the biblical narratives in the degree necessary for forming a judgment on the subject for there is no question here of an unscrupulous narrator who would designedly surpass the true history of the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes and least of all is matthew pronounced to be such a narrator on the contrary it is held that with perfect honesty one account gave five thousand another four and that with equal honesty the first evangelist copied from both and for the very reason that he went to work innocently and undesignedly it was of no importance to him which of the two histories stood first and which last the more important or the less striking one but he allowed himself to be determined on this point by accidental circumstances such as that he found the one connected with incidents which appeared to him the earlier the other with such as he supposed to be the latter a similar instance of duplication occurs in the pentateuch in relation to the histories of the feeding of the israelites with quails and of the production of water out of the rock the former of which is narrated both in exodus chapter sixteen and numbers chapter eleven the latter in exodus chapter seventeen and again in numbers chapter twenty in each instance with an alternation in time place and other circumstances meanwhile all this yields us only the negative result that the double narratives of the first gospels cannot have been founded on two separate events to determine which of the two is historical or whether either of them deserves that epithet must be the object of a special inquiry to evade the pre-eminently magical appearance which this miracle presents olshausen gives it a relation to the moral state of the participants and supposes that the miraculous feeding of the multitude was effected through the intermediation of their spiritual hunger but this is ambiguous language which on the first attempt to determine its meaning vanishes into nothing for in cures for example the intermediation here appealed to consists in the opening of the patient's mind to the influence of jesus by faith so that when faith is wanting the requisite fulcrum for the miraculous power of jesus is also wanting 
Here, therefore, the intermediation is real. Now, if the same kind of intermediation took place in the case before us, so that on those among the multitude who were unbelieving, the satisfying power of Jesus had no influence, then must the satisfaction of hunger here, as in the above cases, the cure, be regarded as something effected by Jesus directly in the body of the hungry persons, without any antecedent augmentation of the external means of nourishment. But such a conception of the matter, as Paulus justly remarks, and as even Olhausen intimates, is precluded by the statement of the evangelists, that real food was distributed among the multitude, that each enjoyed as much as he wanted, and that at the end the residue was greater than the original store. It is thus plainly implied that there was an external and objective increase of the provisions, as a preliminary to the feeding of the multitude. Now this cannot be conceived as effected by means of the faith of the people in a real manner, in the sense that that faith cooperated in producing the multiplication of the loaves. The intermediation which Olhausen here supposes can therefore have been only a teleological one, that is, we are to understand by it that Jesus undertook to multiply the loaves and fishes for the sake of producing a certain moral condition in the multitude. But an intermediation of this kind affords me not the slightest help in forming a conception of the event, for the question is not why, but how it happened. Thus, all which Olhausen believes himself to have done towards rendering this miracle more intelligible, rests on the ambiguity of the expression intermediation, and the inconceivableness of an immediate influence of the will of Jesus on irrational nature, remains chargeable upon this history as upon those last examined. But there is another difficulty which is peculiar to the narrative before us. We have here not merely, as hitherto, a modification or a direction of natural objects, but a multiplication of them, and that to an enormous extent. Nothing, it is true, is more familiar to our observation than the growth and multiplication of natural objects, as presented to us in the parable of the sower, and the grain of mustard seed, for example. But first, these phenomena do not take place without the cooperation of other natural agents, as earth water, air, so that here also, according to the well-known principle of physics, there is not, properly speaking, an augmentation of the substance, but only a change in the accidents. Secondly, these processes of growth and multiplication are carried forward so as to pass through their various stages in corresponding intervals of time. Here, on the contrary, in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes by Jesus, neither the one rule nor the other is observed. The bread in the hand of Jesus is no longer, like the stalk on which the corn grew, in communication with the maternal earth, 
nor is the multiplication gradual but sudden but herein it is said consists the miracle which in relation to the last point especially may be called the acceleration of a natural process that which comes to pass in the space of three-quarters of a year from seed-time to harvest was here effected in the minutes which were required for the distribution of the food for natural developments are capable of acceleration and to how great an extent we cannot determine it would indeed have been an acceleration of a natural process if in the hand of jesus a grain of corn had borne fruit a hundredfold and brought it to maturity and if he had shaken the multiplied grain out of his hands as they were filled again and again that the people might grind knead and bake it or eat it raw from the husk in the wilderness where they were or if he had taken a living fish suddenly called forth the eggs from its body and converted them into full-grown fish which then the disciples or the people might have boiled or roasted this we should say would have been an acceleration of a natural process but it is not corn that he takes into his hand but bread and the fish also as they were distributed in pieces must have been prepared in some way perhaps as in luke chapter twenty four verse forty two compare with john chapter twenty one verse nine broiled or salted here then on both sides the production of nature is no longer simple and living but dead and modified by art so that to introduce a natural process of the above kind jesus must in the first place by his miraculous power have metamorphosed the bread into corn again the roasted fish into raw and living ones then instantaneously have effected the described multiplication and lastly have restored the whole from the natural to the artificial state thus the miracle would be composed first of a revivification which would exceed in miraculousness all other instances in the gospels secondly of an extremely accelerated natural process and thirdly of an artificial process effected invisibly and likewise extremely accelerated since all the tedious proceedings of the miller and baker on the one hand and of the cook on the other must have been accomplished in a moment by the word of jesus how then can olhausen deceive himself and the believing reader by the agreeably sounding expression accelerated natural process when this nevertheless can designate only a third part of the fact of which we are speaking but how are we to represent such a miracle to ourselves and in what stage of the event must it be placed in relation to the latter point three opinions are possible corresponding to the number of the groups that act in our narrative for the multiplication may have taken place either in the hands of jesus or in those of the disciples who dispensed the food or in those of the people who received it the last idea appears on the one hand puerile even to extravagance 
if we are to imagine Jesus and the apostles distributing, with great carefulness, that there might be enough for all, little crumbs which in the hands of the recipients swelled into considerable pieces. On the other hand, it would have been scarcely a possible task to get a particle, however small, for every individual in a multitude of five thousand men, out of five loaves, which, according to Hebrew custom, and particularly as they were carried by a boy, cannot have been very large, and still less out of two fishes. Of the two other opinions, I think, with Olhausen, the one most suitable is that which supposes that the food was augmented under the creative hands of Jesus, and that he, time after time, dispensed new quantities to the disciples. We may then endeavor to represent the matter to ourselves in two ways. First, we may suppose that as fast as one loaf or fish was gone, a new one came out of the hands of Jesus. Or, secondly, that the single loaves and fish grew, so that as one piece was broken off, its loss was repaired, until on a calculation the turn came for the next loaf or fish. The first conception appears to be opposed to the text, which, as it speaks of fragments of the five loaves, John chapter 6 verse 13, can hardly be held to presuppose an increase of this number. Thus there remains only the second, by the poetical description of which Lavature has done but a poor service to the orthodox view. For this miracle belongs to the class which can only appear in any degree credible, so long as they can be retained in the obscurity of an indefinite conception. No sooner does the light shine on them, so that they can be examined in all their parts, then they dissolve like the unsubstantial creations of the mist. Loaves, which in the hands of the distributors expand like wetted sponges, broiled fish in which the severed parts are replaced instantaneously, as in the living crab gradually, plainly belong to quite another domain than that of reality. What gratitude, then, do we not owe to the rationalistic interpretation if it be true that it can free us, in the easiest manner, from the burden of so unheard of a miracle. If we are to believe Dr. Paulus, the evangelists had no idea that they were narrating anything miraculous, and the miracle was first conveyed into their accounts by expositors. What they narrate is, according to him, only thus much that Jesus caused his small store of provisions to be distributed, and that, in consequence of this, the entire multitude obtained enough to eat. Here, in any case, we want a middle term, which would distinctly inform us how it was possible that, although Jesus had so little food to offer, the whole multitude obtained enough to eat. A very natural middle term, however, is to be gathered, according to Paulus, out of the historical combination of the circumstances. As, on a comparison with John chapter 6 verse 4, the multitude appear to have consisted, for the greater part, 
of a caravan on its way to the feast. They cannot have been quite destitute of provisions, and probably a few indigent persons only had exhausted their stores. In order, then, to induce the better provided to share their food with those who were in want, Jesus arranged that they should have a meal, and himself set the example of imparting what he and his disciples could spare from their own little store. This example was imitated, and thus the distribution of bread by Jesus having led to a general distribution, the whole multitude were satisfied. It is true that this natural middle term must be first mentally interpolated into the text. As, however, the supernatural middle term, which is generally received, is just as little stated expressly, and both alike depend upon inference, the reader can hardly do otherwise than decide for the natural one. Such is the reasoning of Dr. Paulus. But the alleged identity in the relation of the two middle terms to the text does not in fact exist. For while the natural explanation requires us to suppose a new distributing subject, the better provided among the multitude, and a new distributed object, their provisions, together with the act of distributing these provisions, the supernatural explanation contents itself with the subject actually present in the text, Jesus and his disciples, with the single object there given, their little store, and their described distribution of this, and only requires us to supply from our imagination the means by which this store could be made sufficient to satisfy the hunger of the multitude, namely, its miraculous augmentation under the hands of Jesus, or of his disciples. How can it be yet maintained that neither of the two middle terms is any more suggested by the text than the other, that the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes is not expressly mentioned, is explained by the consideration that the event itself is one of which no clear conception can be formed, and therefore it is best conveyed by the result alone. But how will the natural theologian account for nothing being said of the distribution, called forth by the example of Jesus, on the part of those among the multitude who had provisions? It is altogether arbitrary to insert that distribution between the sentences, He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples to the multitude, Matthew 14, verse 19, and they did all eat and were filled, verse 20, while the words, and the two fishes divided he among them all, Mark chapter 6, verse 41, plainly indicate that only the two fishes, and consequently only the five loaves, were the object of distribution for all. But the natural explanation falls into especial embarrassment when it comes to the baskets which, after all were satisfied, Jesus caused to be filled with the fragments that remained. The fourth evangelist says, Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, 
which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Chapter 6, verse 13. This seems clearly enough to imply that out of those identical five loaves, after five thousand men had been satisfied by them, there still remained fragments enough to fill twelve baskets, more, that is, than the amount of the original store. Here, therefore, the natural expositor is put to the most extravagant contrivances in order to evade the miracle. It is true, when the synoptists simply say that the remnants of the meal were collected, and twelve baskets filled with them, it might be thought, from the point of view of the natural explanation, caused the fragments which the crowd had left from their own provisions to be collected by his disciples. But as, on the one hand, the fact that the people allowed the remains of the repast to lie, and did not appropriate them, seems to indicate that they treated the nourishment presented to them as the property of another. So, on the other hand, Jesus, when, without any preliminary, he directs his disciples to gather them up, appears to regard them as his own property. Hence, Paulus understands the words, Iran, etc., of the synoptists, not of a collection first made after the meal, of that which remained when the people had been satisfied, but of the overplus of the little store belonging to Jesus and the disciples, which the latter, after reserving what was necessary for Jesus and themselves, carried round as an introduction and inducement to the general repast. But how, when the words, they did all eat and were filled, are immediately followed by, and they took up, can the latter member of the verse refer to the time prior to the meal? Must it not then have necessarily been said at least, for they took up? Further, how, after it had just been said that the people did eat and were filled, can that which remained, especially succeeded as it is in Luke by to them, mean anything else than what the people had left? Lastly, how is it possible that out of five loaves and two fishes, after Jesus and his disciples had reserved enough for themselves, or even without this, there could in a natural manner be twelve baskets filled for distribution among the people. But still more strangely does the natural explanation deal with the narrative of John. Jesus here adds, as a reason for gathering up the fragments, that nothing be lost. Hence, it appears impossible to divest the succeeding statement that they filled twelve baskets with the remains of the five loaves, of its relation to the time after the meal, and in this case it would be impossible to get clear of a miraculous multiplication of the loaves. Paulus, therefore, although the words, therefore, they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets, etc., form a strictly coherent whole, chooses rather to detach sunigagon un, and, by a still more forced construction than that which he employed with the synoptical text, 
makes the narrative pass all at once without the slightest notice into the pluperfect and thus leap back to the time before the meal here then the natural explanation once more fails to fulfil its task the text retains its miracle and if we have reason to think this incredible we must inquire whether the narrative of the text deserves credence the agreement of all the four evangelists is generally adduced in proof of its distinguished credibility but this agreement is by no means so perfect there are minor differences first between matthew and luke then between these two and mark who in this instance again embellishes and lastly between the synoptists collectively and john in the following points according to the synoptists the scene of the event is a desert place according to john a mountain according to the former the scene opens with an address from the disciples according to john with a question from jesus two particulars in which as we have already remarked the narrative of john approaches that of the second feeding in matthew and mark lastly the words which the three first evangelists put into the mouth of the disciples indefinitely the fourth in his individualizing manner ascribes to philip and andrew and the same evangelists also designates the bearer of the loaves and fishes as a boy these divergencies however may be passed over as less essential that we may give our attention only to one which has a deeper hold while namely according to the synoptical accounts jesus had been long teaching the people and healing their sick and was only led to feed them by the approach of evening and the remark of the disciples that the people needed refreshment in john the first thought of jesus when he lifts up his eyes and sees the people gathering round him is that which he expresses in his question to philip whence shall we buy bread that these may eat or rather as he asked this merely to prove philip well knowing himself what he would do he at once forms the resolution of feeding the multitude in a miraculous manner but how could the design of feeding the people arise in jesus immediately on their approach they did not come to him for this but for the sake of his teaching and his curative power he must therefore have conceived this design entirely of his own accord with a view to establish his miraculous power by so signal a demonstration but did he ever thus work a miracle without any necessity and even without any inducement quite arbitrarily and merely for the sake of working a miracle i am unable to describe strongly enough how impossible it is that eating should here have been the first thought of jesus how impossible that he could thus obtrude his miraculous repast on the people thus in relation to this point the synoptical narrative in which there is a reason for the miracle must have the preference to that of john who hastening towards the miracle overlooks the requisite motive for it and makes jesus create instead of awaiting the occasion for its performance an eye-witness could not narrate thus and if therefore 
the account of that gospel to which the greatest authority is now awarded must be rejected as unhistorical so with respect to the other narratives the difficulties of the fact itself are sufficient to cast a doubt on their historical credibility especially if in addition to these negative grounds we can discover positive reasons which render it probable that our narrative had an unhistorical origin such reasons are actually found both within the evangelical history itself and beyond it in the old testament history and the jewish popular belief in relation to the former source it is worthy of remark that in the synoptical gospels as well as in john there are more or less immediately appended to the feeding of the multitude by jesus with literal bread figurative discourses of jesus on bread and leaven namely in the latter the declarations concerning the bread of heaven and the bread of life which jesus gives john chapter six verse twenty seven and following in the former those concerning the false leaven of the pharisees and sadducees that is their false doctrine and hypocrisy matthew chapter sixteen verse five and following mark chapter eight verse fourteen and following compare with luke chapter twelve verse one and on both sides the figurative discourse of jesus is erroneously understood of literal bread it would not then be a very strained conjecture that as in the passages quoted we find the disciples and the people generally understanding literally what jesus meant figuratively so the same mistake was made in the earliest christian tradition if in figurative discourses jesus had sometimes represented himself as him who was able to give the true bread of life to the wandering and hungering people perhaps also placing in opposition to this the leaven of the pharisees the legend agreeably to its realistic tendency may have converted this into the fact of a miraculous feeding of the hungry multitude in the wilderness by jesus the fourth evangelist makes the discourse on the bread of heaven arise out of the miracle of the loaves but the relation might very well have been the reverse and the history owe its origin to the discourse especially as the question which introduces john's narrative whence shall we buy bread that these may eat may be more easily conceived as being uttered by jesus on the first sight of the people if he alluded to feeding them with the word of god compare john chapter four verse thirty two and following to appeasing their spiritual hunger matthew chapter five verse six in order to exercise the higher understanding of his disciples than if he really thought of the satisfaction of their bodily hunger and only wished to try whether his disciples would in this case confide in his miraculous power the synoptical narrative is less suggestive of such a view for the figurative discourse on the leaven could not by itself originate the history of the miracle thus the gospel of john stands alone with reference to the above mode of derivation and it is more agreeable to the character of this gospel to conjecture that it has applied the narrative of a miracle presented by tradition 
to the production of figurative discourses in the alexandrian taste than to suppose that it has preserved to us the original discourses out of which the legend spun that miraculous narrative if then we can discover beyond the limits of the new testament very powerful causes for the origination of our narrative we must renounce the attempt to construct it out of our materials presented by the gospels themselves and here the fourth evangelist by putting into the mouth of the people a reference to the manna that bread of heaven which moses gave to the fathers in the wilderness verse thirty one reminds us of one of the most celebrated passages in the early history of the israelites exodus chapter sixteen which was perfectly adapted to engender the expectation that its antitype would occur in the messianic times and we in fact learn from rabbinical writings that among those functions of the first goel which were to be revived in the second a chief place was given to the impartation of bread from heaven if the mosaic manna presents itself as that which was most likely to be held a type of the bread miraculously augmented by jesus the fish which jesus also multiplied miraculously may remind us that moses gave the people not only a substitute for bread in the manna but also animal food in the quails exodus chapter sixteen verse eight chapter twelve verse thirteen numbers chapter eleven verse four and following in comparing these mosaic narratives with our evangelical ones there appears a striking resemblance even in details the locality of both cases is the wilderness the inducement to the miracle here as there is fear lest the people should suffer from want in the wilderness or perish from hunger in the old testament history this fear is expressed by the people in loud murmurs in that of the new testament it results from the short-sightedness of the disciples and the benevolence of jesus the direction of the latter to his disciples that they should give the people food a direction which implies that he had already formed the design of feeding them miraculously may be paralleled with the command which jehovah gave to moses to feed the people with manna exodus chapter sixteen verse four and with quails exodus chapter sixteen verse twelve numbers chapter eleven verse eighteen through twenty but there is another point of similarity which speaks yet more directly to our present purpose as in the evangelical narrative the disciples think it an impossibility that provision for so great a mass of people should be procured in the wilderness so in the old testament history moses replies doubtingly to the promise of jehovah to satisfy the people with flesh numbers chapter eleven verse twenty one and following to moses as to the disciples the multitude appears too great for the possibility of providing sufficient food for them as the latter ask whence they should have so much bread in the wilderness so moses asks ironically whether they should slay the flocks and the herds which they had not and as the disciples object that not even the most impoverishing expenditure on their part 
would thoroughly meet the demand, so Moses, clothing the idea in another form, had declared that to satisfy the people as Jehovah promised, an impossibility must happen, the fish of the sea be gathered together for them. Objections which Jehovah there, as here Jesus, does not regard, but issues the command that the people should prepare for the reception of the miraculous food. But though these two cases of a miraculous supply of nourishment are thus analogous, there is this essential distinction, that in the Old Testament, in relation both to the manna and the quails, it is a miraculous procuring of food not previously existing which is spoken of, while in the New Testament it is a miraculous augmentation of provision already present, but inadequate, so that the chasm between the Mosaic narrative and the evangelical one is too great for the latter to have been derived immediately from the former. If we search for an intermediate step, a very natural one between Moses and the Messiah is afforded by the prophets. We read of Elijah, that through him and for his sake, the little store of meal and oil which he found in the possession of the widow of Zarephath was miraculously replenished, or rather was made to suffice throughout the duration of the famine. 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 8 through 16. This species of miracle is developed still further and with a greater resemblance to the evangelical narrative in the history of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 42 and following. As Jesus fed five thousand men in the wilderness with five loaves and two fishes, so this prophet, during a famine, fed a hundred men with twenty loaves, which, like those distributed by Jesus in John, are called barley loaves, together with some ground corn, a disproportion between the quantity of provisions and the number of men, which his servant, like the disciples in the other instance, indicates in the question, What, should I set this before a hundred men? Elisha, like Jesus, is not diverted from his purpose, but commands the servant to give what he has to the people, and, as in the New Testament narrative, great stress is laid on the collection of the remaining fragments, so in the Old Testament it is specially noticed at the close of this story that notwithstanding so many had eaten of the store, there was still an overplus. The only important difference here is that, on the side of the evangelical narrative, the number of the loaves is smaller, and that of the people greater. But who does not know that, in general, the legend does not easily imitate, without at the same time surpassing? And who does not see that, in this particular instance, it was entirely suited to the position of the Messiah, that his miraculous power, compared with that of Elisha, should be placed, as it regards the needs of natural means, in the relation of five to twenty, but as it regards the supernatural performance, in that of five thousand to one hundred. Paulus, indeed, in order to preclude the inference, that as the two narratives in the Old Testament 
are to be understood mythically, so also is the strikingly similar evangelical narrative, extends to the former the attempt at a natural explanation, which he has pursued with the latter, making the widow's cruse of oil to be replenished by the aid of the scholars of the prophets, and the twenty loaves suffice for one hundred men by means of a praiseworthy moderation, a mode of explanation which is more practicable here than with the New Testament narrative. In proportion as, by reason of the greater remoteness of these anecdotes, they present fewer critical, and by reason of their merely mediate relation to Christianity, fewer dogmatical, motives for maintaining their historical veracity. Nothing more is wanting to complete the mythical derivation of this history of the miraculous feeding of the multitude, except the proof that the later Jews also believed of particularly holy men, that by their means a small amount of provision was made sufficient, and of this proof the disinterested industry of Dr. Paulus, as a collector, has put us in possession. He adduces a rabbinical statement that, in the time of a specially holy man, the small quantity of showbread more than sufficed for the supply of the priests. To be consequent, this commentator should try to explain this story also naturally, by the moderation of the priests, for instance. But it is not in the canon. Hence, he can unhesitatingly regard it as a fable, and he only so far admits its striking similarity to the evangelical narrative as to observe that in consequence of the Jewish belief in such augmentations of food, attested by that rabbinical statement, the New Testament narrative may, in early times, have been understood by Judaizing Christians in the same miraculous sense. But our estimation has shown that the evangelical narrative was designedly composed so as to convey this sense, and if this sense was an element of the popular Jewish legend, then is the evangelical narrative without doubt a product of that legend. End of section 102